Welcome to a very special edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series. During this segment, we traveled down to 18 and Vine in Kansas City, Missouri, to interview the executive director of the Mutual Musicians Foundation, Anita Dixon. This staple and legendary institution is in the heart of America's jazz district, and it's the reason why Kansas City Jazz was put on the map. And Anita has big plans for the upcoming 100-year celebration taking place in 2017. Over the course of a candid interview, she spoke about the sacred history of Kansas City's local 627, how it began, the incredible history as it unfolded, and what is next. To understand Kansas City Jazz, you have to understand the Mutual Musicians Foundation. Dig this interview, my friends. Talk to me about yourself. Where were you born and raised? Well, actually, I was born about four blocks down the street. Uh, including Euclid a number of years ago. <laughs> I won't say how many. But uh, I'm a Kansas City born and bred person. Uh, my mother moved away in the early 60s. And I moved back in the early 80s. And I've been back home ever since. Wonderful. Yes. So how did you get involved with jazz? From a young age? Oh, from a young age. From a young age. Um, we lived over on uh, 10th and Euclid, you know, back in the day, on 18th and uh, Woodland. And it was tradition <clears throat> during the summertime to go into Parade Park and a number of places when it would get hot. A lot of the families would just come out. You know, the African-American community was so contained. Yeah. And a lot of the families would come out and go into the park and listen to music that was part of the park system and stuff. Little did I know I was listening to Count Basie or, you know, people like that. It was just a lot of fun, and that's what we did. So it was growing up with it. I remember one of the greatest arguments my parents had. Who was better, Charlie Parker or um, the gentleman we were talking about? Um, Lou Donaldson. Lou Donaldson. My mother just, you, you've lost your mind. Tell her, Lou Donaldson's much better. So later on, I got an opportunity to actually meet Lou Donaldson um, during um, the first uh, works of the International Jazz Hall of Fame. I got to tell him that story. So, you know, jazz has been a part of my life all my life. Nice. Are you, are you a musician? Absolutely no. That's the funny thing. I am the only non-musician on the board of directors of the Mutual Musicians Foundation. Wow. I started business in the heritage and history of African Americans many, many years ago. And the foundation was always a stop mm-hmm. on the tour route that I would do. So the history and heritage of the area and stuff became uh, heavily researched and things that I felt so I could present this tour. So I've been coming in and out of here. But my first story of coming here was 1976. And I was somewhere around 16 years old or somewhere like that. And my dad gave me places he did not want me to go. And one of those, and I never want to see you at that dadgum union hall. I had to find out where that dadgum union hall was. Yeah. What, what's so wrong with the dadgum union hall? And my first step in here as a girlfriend, I took the bus from Prospect down here and walked over here. And the first person I saw sitting on the front porch was uh, Big Joe Turner smoking a cigarette. You know, as you know, like, what is this place? Yeah. You know, and I've been coming out of, in and out of here since then. Very nice. Um, who are your jazz heroes? Current or past? Either. You know, I probably have to say Hazel Scott, the pianist, you know, who was just incredible that Mary Lou Williams, you know, that if I were to say there were any heroes, it would be those women that didn't get the opportunities or the recognition that the guys did would be Hazel Scott and Mary Lou Williams because they were directors and composers and, you know, and uh, 
they did everything the guys did, they just didn't get the recognition that they did. So those are probably my two biggest heroes. So let's go back to when you came in here the first time, and you've been here ever since. How did you become the director? How did you get really woven into the fabric? Well, it was a lot of controversy. When I, well, since the early 90s, I had been doing a lot of tours down here, so the foundation became very important on the history when I did tours of the African-American community. It became very, very important as part of things. So as I started building 18th and Vine and uh, you know, uh, tearing down the buildings and things like that, you know, I was very concerned about the culture and the preservation of that. So I started getting involved a lot during the international uh, scene. But many years ago, I used to work with that gentleman, Eddie Baker, when he was first conceiving the International Jazz Hall of Fame. And I was one of his gophers, one of his, you know, marketing people that assisted in that. So I saw one transition to another transition to another transition, and it was kind of disturbing. And somewhere around like 2009, when this place was having such upheaval, let a lot of people know what was going on and things like that. Some people were here that people didn't think should be here and a number of other things. It's just ancient history now. But uh, I kind of walked in on that and saw that there was not enough organizational thought mm -hmm. to be able to move this forward. Yeah. Everybody had an agenda, but none of it surrounded the preservation of the music. Right. It was all about tourism, or all about marketing, or all about that. And, you know, like they say, truth is stranger than fiction. All you have to do is take the truth of the place and get that known, and then everything else kind of falls into place, and that's what's starting to happen. Wonderful. So... If you could go back in time and be down here during the heyday of 18 and Vine, what's the most intriguing thing? What would you want to see? If I could be here in this place or on 18 and Either one. There's a lot going on here. So if it's here or if it's down more on 18 and Vine, what would you want to have witnessed be a fly on the wall to see? I would have liked to have been at the Battle of Bands. Yeah. I would have liked to have been May 5th, 1930. Battle of the Bands, when they dedicated this place the day before and held that big party that night. I would have liked to have done that. Very cool. Yeah, sometimes I even imagine myself, you know, what I would have dressed and what I would have worn and stuff, because I'm a big 40s, 30s Art Deco person. Yeah. You know, what I would have done, who would have been my date, all of that. I would have been married to some one of these big guys. Yeah. <laughs> yep. At that particular time, I would have been either that or a muse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, cool like that. Yeah. But that's what I would have liked. That's the day, that's the evening, and the day I would have liked to have been at the Battle of Bands. Very cool. To, who, who do you think are the top five musicians that ever came out of Kansas City? Without question, um, Jamie Chan, Charlie Parker, of course. Uh, ben Webster, uh, Mary Lou Williams, who didn't come out of here, but she, she's a big part of this. Um, and for my personal favorite, Eddie Baker. Very nice. Mm -hmm. What's the greatest thing about Kansas City? That it occupies one place <coughs> in global history that is probably second to none. We are one of the four pillars of the creation of the entire genre of jazz. And if Kansas City would only know how incredibly cool that was, 
then they would stop fighting. Do you know that if Kansas City would realize that to the extent that we know it here, that we would probably not have any more economic development problems if we would just cater completely and entirely to that culture and that understanding of that being a pillar of the creation of the only indigenous art form known to America. That's strong. That's what we literally stand on. We don't compromise. We don't back up off of that. Know, we're the greatest thing. It says sliced bread and peanut butter. And we're just not going to yeah. compromise it for a marketing plan. Absolutely. So let me ask you some questions about the foundation. It started in 1917, right. Casey's Local 627. Why did it begin? It began out of necessity, as anything would be. You know, and when you're talking about the turn of the 20th century, you know, you're talking about X amount of years removed from slavery, okay, where this music had become the music of the, uh, the affluent. The Astors, the Pierponts, the, these people, they hired us, okay? And in hiring anybody, anything, you get abused in that situation. So the American Federation of Musicians, which could come online at the first of that, began to recognize, you know, somewhere around the first of the turn of the century after the gay 90s and so, began to recognize the contributions of the African Americans' music. So they offered them the opportunity of having the chapters of, uh, of uh, uh, protection underneath the union, as many people were, you know, Teamsters and Pipe, you know, people, this, this was the union movement. So we became uh, local number 627 American Federation of Musicians in 1917. Yeah. So talk to me about the story of the foundation. If you had a, there's a long sprawling history from 1917 to today, mm -hmm. we're going on 100 year. Mm -hmm. Give me kind of a synopsis of the history. Are you talking about the foundation or the organization as a union? Uh, because I can't. The organization is a union. Organization is a union. Probably, we are able to mark what other organizations in this cultural vein of music cannot mark. They give you a circle and everything, you know, around about this time. But we have a definite year. And that definite year gives us background like nobody, you know. Um, the way you were to have dressed, what you would have eaten, what, you know, how the neighborhood looked, you know, those kinds of things. We are the, almost the epicenter of that. Yeah. <clears throat> because around us were homes and businesses and things, but everything revolves around music and humanity, no matter what you do. Okay, so we're the epicenter of what was to become Kansas City. You know, as, as much as some people, well, it was Pendigans, what was this? What was the stockyard? So, yes, it was all of that. Yeah. But when you think of being an epicenter, when you think of being a cultural contribution to the world, the, the union <clears throat> brought in opportunity, like unions tend to do. It brought in economic opportunity. It gave people who wanted to use this as a uh, as a as a vocation, as something they did in life, they worked as um, teachers and things like that. But at night, you know, they did this. But it was always the music. It was always that. So to say, and then as it evolved, and the community involved, and the various things that were happening, when you're talking about, 
you know, World War One, World War Two, uh, Civil Rights Movement, Korean War, the, all those things, all of those things encompassed us too. But we have music for each and every one of those eras, you know, and it's the most amazing thing to sit back and be able to chronicle the history of man through his music and then telling so much of a history of a music that is, it, it boggles my mind sometimes to think about, okay, a hundred years of anything, a hundred years of being born in America, a hundred years of the, who gets to hit that mark? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Who gets to hit that mark? So as a shrine down here, how important is the foundation in the history of people understanding 18 and Vine and that lore? It is the most important thing because we're the roots that produce the fruits. We are the reason why Kansas City is on the map all over the world. And say what you will, but nobody knows Kansas City for anything else. I <laughs> mean, you know, yay, barbecue, I'm with them. Okay, yay, Liberty Memorial, I'm definitely with that. You know, I'm definitely with that. But when the world says Kansas City, the world says jazz. Yeah. That's, what do you say to that kind of history? Yeah. You know, what do you say to that? Yeah. You know, nothing other than, that's the most brilliant thing ever. Absolutely. So let's talk about a little bit of the history. Uh, William Shaw, 20 years, mm -hmm. what did he do? He, he gave the basis for what running this place actually meant. Now, when you're talking about a 20-year presidency, during the 1920s and 30s and 40s, you're talking about a guy that had to be part musician, part gangster. You know, yeah, sure. <laughs> pretty much. Sure. And the enforcement of union activities in nightclubs had to be a gangster situation. Think about it. You know, uh, you, you got a club owner who doesn't want to pay up. Really? You got in Kansas City in the 30s in a union town? Yeah. Boss Tom, who was he? He was a big time union man. As it goes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As it goes. As it goes. So you had to be, so he had to be respected and feared at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, you got 20 years of William Shaw doing that, and it's still up and running, still making money. I hear a lot of stuff like, he stole money. Like, well, who didn't back in the day? Yeah. Okay, who didn't? Boss Tom went to prison, but he also elected a president. Yeah. So help me out with what was wrong yeah. with holding on to the way that you did business back then. That's the way it went down. Okay, oh, yeah. you carried a gun. I heard the stories. Yeah. You know, if you didn't have your union card paid up and they found out you were on the stage, they'd strap on and go down there and get you off yeah. until you paid your dues. Yeah. That's the way it worked. Yeah. So I think it's kind of cool, personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you think there was any disgrace when he was had to step down in 49 for the problems, they said there was embezzlement, do you think that tarnished his tenure here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, I think it was pretty much the fact that, you know, after 20-something years, it was just the time to do it. It's just like any type of uh, a person who holds absolute power over something for a number of times. Nobody escapes the getting corrupt thing. Yeah. Nobody escapes that. Right. Yeah, it's the deal. Yeah. It's yeah. what happens. I got 
control over this is what I do. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, it, you know, and this is what kills me about people. They act as if it didn't happen anywhere else. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Teamsters. Yeah. You know, big yeah. union bosses everywhere. Yeah. In the 1950s particularly. Yeah. You know, the power those guys wielded over the industries were just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so no, no disgrace, just history. Yeah. So the, the ground we're standing on, 1929, this building was converted, and they threw a big shindig at the mm-hmm. uh, Seo Hall, mm-hmm. and the call talked about how crazy it was. What do you think that would have been like? I've seen stuff like that in the Black community, you know. Uh, <laughs> I know what it was like. <laughs> okay. People trying to sneak inside doors. You know, people dressed to the nines. You know, it still amazes me. I'm, I'm going, I'm preparing to go to Copenhagen. So I had all these, you know, beautiful things I'm going to wear and stuff to the nightclubs. And the guy told me, don't do that. We don't dress like that there. And in the black community, it's like a tradition. After five, it's still very much a tradition. Yeah. You know, so I'm kind of surprised that. But back then, there would have been glorious furs, beautiful dresses. One of my most vivid memories of my parents getting ready to go to a dance at Paseo Hall. Yeah. And my mother wearing this electric blue type flowing dress with red foxes and you know my dad in this very, very, very beautiful cashmere coat and things like that and they're singing and dancing and stuff just before they step out the door. It's like this memory that's just permanently etched in my mind. Yeah. So I know exactly what was going to be happening. Nice cars and men spending all day long cleaning their cars. The women spending all day long getting their hair pressed and set, and you know their dresses picked up from the cleaners, and you know uh, the guys with the liquor and pouring liquor in the flask, and everybody did everything so cool back then. Men carried handkerchiefs and pocket knives, and you know women were never without a little thing or a little change wrapped in a piece of uh, uh, in your handkerchief for the phone. And, these are things that were just part of a community's movements. Because when you lived thirty to 40,000 in three square miles, yeah. there was always activity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What, uh, talk to me about the foundation, the people that came through, Andy Kirk, Count Basie, Joe Turner, Charlie Parker was a card carrying member. Just all the musicians that are on these walls here. Talk to me about the musicians and the influence and what drew them here and how they really etched the Kansas City Jazz Star in the universe. You know, this 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 was their clubhouse. Yeah. This was where they chilled out. This is where they came and they met their women or prospective spouses or they gave a party, they had a fight. This this was their place. Their place. That nobody could take away from them because they owned it outright. Okay, and that's another thing. They owned it outright. You know, it wasn't a part of the American Federation of Musicians. It was theirs. Okay, so the musicians coming in and out of here, I'm telling you, the spirits, sometimes I just sit in here when I'm looking for inspiration about what do I do next? What do I do? You know, and I just come down here sometimes and I just sit and listen. You know, and you know, I'll get a chuckle in my brain, or I'll get an idea from one of the pictures, or something I want to wear, or something. Always comes out of here, so I know the spirits still dominate what goes on here, and why it is still, still such a, you know, like 
catching your throat when you come in the door. You know, when we had the paranormal people here, they were just absolutely, they walked out like they were on 10 feet of clouds. Like, oh my God, did you see us? I saw it, I felt it, but I see it, I feel it all the time. Yeah. So they kind of like imprinted the place with the purpose that we adhere to now. Wonderful. You know. So we're coming up on 100 years. What's, what's going to happen? What kind of celebrations? What do you want this town and the world to know about the foundation and its place in history? I want this, first of all, we hold a responsibility to those who came before us. I want them to know that we remember how important this was. Because I'm that kind of person spiritually. I believe that they came to do what they did and left us a responsibility. And sometimes I see that responsibility shirked in a number of ways, but I want to see them appeased first. That everything that I lived for and everything that I came to do, I make sure that people remembered them first and foremost. Celebration-wise, it's once the momentum gains, and I feel that happening after I get back from Copenhagen and paying our dues to Ben Webster's, you know, I see a celebration that is second to none on a global basis. Look at what's happening in jazz globally, the International Jazz Day celebration, you know, Osaka, Japan, Istanbul, Turkey. You know, these people are beginning to understand that jazz is such a world thing that Kansas City will not be able to contain the whole thing. Yeah. You know, they just can't. Yeah. You know, thus the conference for next year. Yeah. Thus the reaching out to say that the world, once the world realizes what's happened here, it's going to change Kansas City. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, uh, if people are doing research and really looking into the foundation, what do you know about this place that a lot of people don't know? That's a good one. What do I know about this place? That you can dispense. Okay. <laughs> what do I know about this place that a lot of people don't know? That, oh, probably that what the, um, the uh, present wood and things on the walls and the way it looks outside is actually the upgrade of the 1980s. Wow. Okay, that it's not the same place. So when people come in and tell me, oh, don't touch that, it's historic. Well, relatively, yeah. <laughs> more or less, yeah. you know. But a lot of people don't know that. They think that this is the way it looked back in the 1930s, and that's just not true. Interesting. You know, so yeah. a lot of people, you know, uh, there was no sidewalk out front there. There were no stairs, and all that changed. Yeah. That was part of the upgrade. In the 1980s, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let me let me get to my final question here mm -hmm. on a well-rounded look at you and the foundation. What's the future? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years down the line. What do you want to continue to happen for this foundation? The respect for the culture of the contributions of the African-American artist. You know, it seems as if there, <clears throat> people want to shove that aside as that that doesn't matter. You know, I hear things that, such as, well, jazz isn't all black. And it, well, no one said that. You know, what I'm saying is that if you were to investigate the origins of jazz, they came out of the oppressive 
situations and things that African Americans experienced as part of the African diaspora, period. We can say anything you like about whoever joined us later who were great people. Gene Krupa, Louis Belson, you know, just huge names, Artie Shaw, you know, Glenn Miller. Come on, I don't take anything from those guys. Yeah. But they got it from us. <laughs> okay? Yeah. They got it from us. And whenever you get through, if you're going to be good at this, if you're going to be a good jazz musician, you need to immerse yourself in the understanding of the culture of the African of the diaspora. Then you will thus get that spiritual improvisation thing that made these guys so great. Yeah. Okay? Because a lot of folk got it. David Sanborn got it in spades. You know? Yeah, sure. He got it in spades. And that was one of the reasons why he got it. And he'll tell you that. You know, uh, Louis Belson, who married Pearl Bailey, mm -hmm. he'll tell you, this is how I got it. I don't know, these guys. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I, I, you know, I like to hear the musician who hits the notes and thinks because he hit the note, he got the soul jazz. And nothing could be further from the truth. The soul remains and will always reside in the hearts and minds of the African American of the diaspora, of the enslavement period. That's jazz. And when you understand that, then you are a jazz musician. <laughs> okay. That's perfect. That's a perfect way to end. That's awesome. Thanks for listening and tuning into a very special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the institutions, people, and musicians that keep the Kansas City jazz scene alive and thriving. And thanks to the foundations, Anita Dixon, for her tireless energy and determination to keep Kansas City jazz going forever. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.